Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Baucom, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. So look, I loved Ecclesiastes. That study was helpful to me. I hope it was to you. But after Ecclesiastes, I, winter blues. You know, I, I'm ready for a little resurrection, are you? And we're just a month away from Easter. And so that's where we're going to turn our attention. And I'm really excited about this sermon series, which is called Foreshadows. Now, I want to talk to you about a shadow for a second, because a shadow is not an exact representation of that which is uh, obscured by the sun. It's, it's sort of a partial representation. It's an illusion. It's a picture. So if I see your shadow, I might be able to figure out who you are, if you have some really discerning feature, you're wearing a certain hat, whatever the case may be, but I'll certainly know that you're there. And that's what we're looking for here. We're looking for foreshadows or foreshadowings of the resurrection. So a foreshadow, as many of you know, is a a representation of some sort of something that's going to happen. It represents, indicates, typifies something Beforehand, another word we could use is is to prefigure. Uh, foreshadow is actually a verb. I'm using it as a noun here uh, because we're looking for places where foreshadowing occurs in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures in this case. Now, if you read a lot, you know all about foreshadowing as a technique. You know all about how it works. If you like drama, you watch uh, plays. Assuming you could go to Broadway and you will someday again, you know what foreshadowing looks like. And it is really prevalent in movies. And I love movies. I love to read. And so I see lots of examples of foreshadowing. And one of the places where we see that frequently is in one of my all-time favorite movies. I wonder how many of you love, if I show this picture, do you know what movie that is? That's The Sixth Sense. Now, I'm about to ruin this movie for you. I'm going to warn you in advance, if you've never seen it, it came out in 1999. So if you haven't seen it, you don't watch movies anyway. But it's, it's an old movie. It's a, it's, a, it's a great movie. It's one of my favorite sort of combination drama horror pieces. And, um, you know, Bruce Willis uh, and, and uh, Osment, the boy that plays in this, they just do a stellar job with performance. But it is loaded with foreshadows. It is loaded with this prefiguring of what the final solution is going to be. Now, the first time I ever watched this movie, I was with my wife, Debbie. We watch a lot of movies together. This is one we both like. That's not always the case. You know, sometimes she likes one and I don't care for it. I like another and she doesn't care for it. This is one we both liked. <clears throat> and we get to the end of it and I had a duh moment. Do you know what a duh moment is? Like, how could I not have seen that? And she noticed it and saw it all along because she is far more observant than I am. I'm an N on the Myers-Briggs. She's an S and she picks up all these little details and she goes, I knew it the whole time. And I'm like, how did you know? And she's like, because didn't you remember this, this, and this? And I had to watch the movie again to recognize that what I was seeing was, was sort of an oblique, an obscured kind of an image of what was to occur. So I get to the end of this movie. This movie is about a child psychologist. He's dealing with a troubled child. The child sees sorts of strange visions. He's trying to unravel that. He supposedly is dealing with the child's mother. He's dealing with his wife. It's, it's a, you've got to watch. You got, if you haven't seen it, you've got to see it. But I'm going to tell you, I get to the end of it and I go, duh, he's dead. 
Oh, this makes the whole thing make sense. And Debbie goes, how did you miss this? I mean, don't you remember this scene? Yeah, but I thought, no, that was obvious. How about this scene, this scene? All through it, there are these foreshadows of what is to come, of sort of the the conclusion of the movie. And if you understand, if you notice the foreshadows, it's a logical conclusion. But the movie wouldn't really be good if these foreshadows were easy to see. If they were exact translations of, of predictions, if they were precise, then the movie wouldn't work. And I suggest to you that in the unfolding of God's story of salvation, it's the same way. That we have these, these foreshadows, these, these, these obscured pictures of what is to come. This sense, if you will, maybe even a sixth sense of what God is up to. But they're not precise enough that we can predict with certainty exactly what's going to happen. And, and that's God's plan, apparently, because if we were to be able to see the future before it occurred, then, then that would make us divine in some way, wouldn't it? So all we can do is get these, these clues. So I'm watching that movie. I say, duh, he's dead. So you know the story, I'm pretty sure, of the crucifixion of Jesus, right? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that even if you've never been to church in your life, if you're in the house for the first time today, if you're watching a church for the first time today, you still know the story of the crucifixion. And if you were reading it for the first time, or if you were the apostles, the followers of Jesus, and you were walking through the experience of his death on a cross, when he breathed his last, you would have thought, The story was over, except that Jesus told them all through his life that he would rise again on the third day. I mean, all through his ministry, he said on numerous occasions, and I've preached this a number of times, he he preaches, he teaches them that he is going to suffer and then he's going to rise on the third day. But, you know, they can be forgiven for not remembering that when Jesus died on the cross because, because it felt so final for one thing and, and for another, who ever heard of someone actually rising from death? Uh, well, you know the story of the cross. And then you get to Easter Sunday and you go, duh, he's alive. I mean, surely they said to one another, we should have known. After all, Jesus told us, and by the way, we see it in the scriptures. Now, this is what made me curious here. It's not that I'd never studied this before. It's not that I hadn't seen it in seminary. It's, it's not that I hadn't read it before. But for some reason, when I, I got to a particular passage this past year, my curiosity was piqued. And, and it happened as I was reading through the Bible, because I read the Bible through once a year, every year. I have a little plan. So you leave, read a little piece of something boring and then a little something more interesting. And you read a little Old Testament, a little New Testament every day. And I get to 1 Corinthians 15, which is a chapter of scripture I know as well as any of the Bible, because it is Paul's central teaching on the resurrection of Christ and its attachment to the resurrection of the dead in Christ. I mean, this is an amazing chapter. It is, in fact, the first extant writing in the church's history on the resurrection of Jesus. It's the first one. It comes before the Gospels. We believe it comes before Paul's other writings. It is the first time that he lines out the theology of the resurrection and how it's attached to what's going to happen to us in the future. So I I love this chapter of scripture, but I'm reading through it 
and I stumble on a line, do you do this sometimes? That I'd read many times before, but, but sort of never got curious about. This time I did. Here's the line. 1 Corinthians 15, three through four. For what I received, I passed on to you, you know that's a formula of Paul's, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Okay, I knew that, but listen carefully. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. Now, I'm positive there are people who know the Bible far better than I, but I know it pretty well. And I was relatively certain when I read this, there is no specific place in the Old Testament. There's no specific place in the Hebrew Bible where it says that a Messiah would rise on the third day in that kind of detail. And so I I got curious and, and I'm wondering, I wonder what Paul is talking about here. And I could think of a couple of places I'd studied before. I thought, I'm just going to stop, and I'm going to take a look through. You might ask, why the Hebrew Scriptures? Well, listen, that's all Paul had. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the Hebrew Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, backward and forward. He probably knew the Torah by heart. There's every possibility that he did. He, He knew the prophets. He knew everything that was in the Old Testament. That was his Bible. If Paul talks about Scripture, you can rest assured he is talking about the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. I can go further than that. That was true for Jesus, too. If Jesus talked about Scripture, he wasn't talking about the New Testament, which wasn't fully canonized until the 4th and 5th centuries, even though some parts of it were regarded as Scripture as early as the 2nd century. When Jesus talked about scripture, you can rest assured you need to look at the Old Testament. That's what he's talking about. I can go any farther than that. For the early church, the scripture was the Old Testament. Once the letters of Paul started to be circulated, then a few gospels, Mark first, started to be circulated. The church started to read them aloud, but they did not regard anything as scripture again until about the late second century, except the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. It was the Bible. It was their scripture. The Hebrew scriptures were it. So guess what? If you went to church in the early church on Easter Sunday, you would have heard a sermon on the resurrection of Jesus rooted in the Old Testament. Now that's intriguing. That's interesting. We tend to forget this. We think our experience of church is the same as it has been all throughout the church's 2,000-year history. No, not at all. So I suddenly recognized, maybe for the first time, that it was important that I understand what they meant when they said, according to Scripture. Paul saw foreshadows of the resurrection. But here's the thing, so did the apostles. In John 2, we read this, and I remembered this immediately when I was reading 1 Corinthians 15. After he was raised from the dead, after they could see the detail of the story, his disciples recalled what he'd said. And then they believed the scripture, that is the Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament, and the words that Jesus had spoken. Then they understood what Jesus meant when he said he'd rise on the third day, and then somehow they saw something different in the Old Testament, in the Scripture. Then they believed. This is their duh moment, right? Duh, 
He's, he's alive, and we, we should have known it. The apostles saw foreshadows of the resurrection in the Hebrew Scriptures. But not only that, so did Jesus. Now, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me every single time. So this one really matters. In Luke 24, 45 through 46, we read, Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Then Jesus blew the apostles' minds. This is the risen Lord we're talking about here after the resurrection. He told them, This is what is what? Written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Jesus saw foreshadows of the resurrection in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now again, I know the Hebrew Scriptures pretty well. Not only in English, but even in in Hebrew. There is no place that you can find in the Hebrew Scriptures where just Out in the open, with great detail, we're told there would be a messianic figure, a third person, who would die, suffer, and then would rise again on the third day. So my question became, what foreshadows did Jesus, Paul, and the apostles see? What indications did they see in the Hebrew Scriptures that they should have seen all along? What caused them after the resurrection to go, duh, we should have known because it's written all over the pages of the Word of God, the Bible. It's written in history. It's printed on what God is doing in the world today. Well, here's the easy thing. You may point me to some places and you won't be quite home because resurrection is easy to find in the Old Testament. I mean, relatively easy. For example, in Isaiah chapter 26, 19, but your dead will live, Lord, their bodies will rise. Pretty specific, right? Your dead will live, Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. I think you'll agree with me that's not so obscure. I mean, pretty easy to see. It's obvious that Isaiah's vision includes the resurrection of the faithful to life after death. Resurrection is all over the Old Testament. Or how about this one, Daniel 12, 2. And by the way, these are just a couple of examples. You can find more. This one's important because Jesus actually quotes a part of it in Matthew 25, 46. Daniel 12, 2 tells us, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So we look at the Old Testament, we have no problem finding resurrection. Now, if if you're a student of Christian history and you know the story of Jesus, you probably recognize that one of the distinctions between the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jesus' day was that the Sadducees did not accept the notion of the resurrection of the dead, but the Pharisees did. Some Pharisees believed in bodily resurrection, some just in spiritual resurrection, but the Pharisees were all about the resurrection of the dead, and a lot of the more orthodox ones believed that the bodily resurrection of the faithful would occur. So resurrection was not foreign to people in Jesus' day, and it would not have been foreign to the apostles. 
you might remember then in John chapter 11, verses 24 through 25, the story of the raising of Lazarus is one of the most famous places in all of scripture because Jesus asked, do you believe that you'll see Lazarus again, essentially? And Martha said, I know. Now listen to what she says. I don't think, I I don't even believe. I know that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I read this at every funeral. It's so vital to our understanding of scripture. So Martha would have represented the more common Jews of her day, the Orthodox of whom would have believed in the resurrection of the dead. That's easy. I don't even need to preach that. It's easy to find the notion of resurrection in the Old Testament. But what about foreshadows of messianic resurrection? See, it's one thing to say that there would be a bodily resurrection, and it's another thing entirely to say that that would be instrumentalized, made possible by the resurrection of a third party, in this case, a messianic figure, and that the two things are closely attached. That is completely another thing. I think it might bother some people that they can't find this specifically stated in the Old Testament. It shouldn't. This is not how God works. He doesn't give us every little detail. He doesn't make us prescient. He doesn't allow us to see complete pictures of the future. We just have vague understandings. We're we're seeing foreshadows all the time, but we, we don't even know exactly what we're seeing. So I don't think we should expect that anyone that wrote the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, should have had a specific understanding about how the resurrection would work. But... I think we can expect that there would be foreshadows, that there would be allusions to what was going to occur because we know that resurrection was God's plan all along, that this is the way God intended to to cement salvation in his world. Now let's move forward to this because I think you'll be interested. As I see it, and you may be able to find more, if you do, Enter into conversation with me because it's kind of fun to, as I said, spelunk the caves of the Hebrew scriptures and look at the stalactites and stalagmites inside for yourself and decide, is this one of these foreshadows? And as I see it, there are four places that we have to go. There are some others, but these are the four we have to look at. And these are, in fact, we can prove historically, the four that the early church tended to preach when they spoke about the resurrection. So I want to know, What did the early church see? I want to know, what did Paul see? And I want to know, what did Jesus see? And therefore, what should I see? I'll go to these four places. And the first of them is in David's Psalms. Now, this probably shouldn't surprise us, right? You know the story of the birth of Jesus, and you know that David's line would be the one from which the Messiah would come. This was well known. It was not a hidden thing. It was not an obscure thing. All Orthodox Jews believed that Jesus or the Messiah rather would come from the line of David. In fact, they, they saw the coming of the Messiah as a reestablishment of the throne of David, which, which created some confusion, but that's the way they understood the prophecies. That's how they saw what would occur. But you also may have reason to believe that David himself, if anyone would in the Old Testament, 
might have expected a messianic resurrection of some sort. And the reason is because David believed what God promised him. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, we find your house, David, and your kingdom, David, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, David was a smart guy, and so it's unlikely that he believed that the present monarchy that he'd established, the coming together of the two kingdoms of Israel to create a, a big mega Israel, that that would last forever. He knew that kingdoms rose and fall, and in fact, that's all in the Old Testament. David probably understood that this meant something different than that his sons, 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 sons would occupy the throne. He also probably understood that when God said your kingdom will be established before me, there was something different going on than just an earthly kingdom and that it would be established forever. That means beyond the existence of the world itself. So David understands probably that something huge is happening here. And if anyone would have expected that there would be a messianic coming and perhaps even a messianic resurrection, it might be David. So there are two Psalms of David that we look at here, two places that are sort of the first obvious places to look, and the first of them is Psalm 16. Now, I'm not going to read the whole of Psalm 16, though I will read the whole of the next Psalm because I want you to see something. But this portion of the Psalm, beginning with chapter 16, verse 7, and carrying through verse 11, reads like this, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, my hand of blessing, my hand of encouragement, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Why? because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Okay, there we have another allusion to the resurrection of the faithful. But we have to keep reading. Nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand, your hand of blessing. Now, this is really interesting. This is where it gets really intriguing. Let's look again at this section. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay or following the lead of the Septuagint. And if you're reading something like the ESV, the word there is corruption. Remember that in a moment because it's going to be important to something I'll show you historically. Now, David's talking about something different, right? He is talking about the resurrection of the faithful, the thing that's easy to find. But he's going a step further. And he is alluding to the resurrection of a third person with a specific name. And not only that, he is attaching the reality of his own resurrection to the reality of that third person. That's enormous. That's huge. That's big. That's a foreshadow. That's a foreshadow. Do you know the difference between sort of an obscura and something that is detailed? Well, this is like dating somebody for a long, long time. You really love them and you talk about spending your life together, but that person 
never proposes to you. That person never, if you're a woman, puts a ring on your finger. And sooner or later, you start to say, hold on a second. I hear you speak words about the future, but you've not sealed the future in a specific way. Some of you have had experience with this. It's not fun. You commit a lot of your life to someone, and they're not ready to lock it down. Make a commitment. Here, we see a commitment. We see the difference between an idea, a notion, and a commitment. David takes the next step, not only the resurrection of the dead, but a named third person, and the name is really intriguing, whose body will not see corruption or decay. And not only that, his experience in eternity will be attached to the experience of that person. That's a messianic resurrection. Gets really interesting when you look at the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, there's a really intriguing word here. It doesn't occur often in the Old Testament, but when it does occur, it refers often to a messianic figure who will come. And that word is the word hasadeke, hasadeke. And the word hasadeke can be translated the way that it's translated in the NIV, but it is better translated your holy one. Who is God's holy one? I'm relatively certain that if I woke you up in the middle of the night and asked you this question, after you asked me what I was doing in your bedroom in the middle of the night, if I asked you who is God's holy one, you would say, in the house, who would you say? Well, you'd say Jesus. And then by extension, you might say, and you know what? Because it's Jesus, then also me. By extension, I, I take on that identity of Christ, and so I can also be Hasadeke. I can be God's holy one. But in this case, I think clearly David is referencing a messianic figure, God's holy one. So it is God's holy one, a messianic figure who will not see corruption or decay. In fact, I... I'm pretty certain, I can't say this for sure because I never knew Athanasius. I would love to have known Athanasius, but I did not know Athanasius. And that's because he was born in, in the fourth century and, uh, and actually lived a, a little bit into the, the well, he's born in the third century and lived into the fourth century. Athanasius, you're gonna remember, I'm positive because you remember everything I preach. I know this is true. So if you were here for the Trinitatis series, which to this day, a lot of people go, could you preach something else like the Trinitatis series. I mean, this, that was proof even a blind hog finds an acorn every now and then. So the Trinitatis series was about Trinity, where it comes from in the Bible, how it was formed historically, etc. And you might remember that Athanasius, the Coptic church father in 325 at the Council of Nicaea, that he settled the issue of the Trinity contra Arius. You remember he debated Arius and he wrote a little work called On the Incarnation. He became so important, although he was persecuted, but he became really important in Christian history because he settled the matter of the Trinity. And in that magnificent little work, which every single one of you ought to read, I'm telling you, in that incredible little work on the incarnation, he writes, the son of the father of the word through the indwelling word would remain, would you say that word with me, incorruptible. And so what? corruption might henceforth cease from all by the grace of the resurrection. Now, when we look at his language, we can tell that he gets his language from the Septuagint, which he knew well, and therefore we're pretty certain that he's looking where? At Psalm 16. That's amazing. 
That means that just beyond the scope of what we call the early church, in the ancient church fathers' preaching, when they preached about the resurrection of Jesus, where do you think they went? If you went to church on Easter Sunday before about the fifth or sixth century, what scripture might you hear? Psalm 16 is a pretty good guess. That's huge. I'm always intrigued to know what the early church saw, what Paul saw, what the apostles saw, what Jesus saw. If like the apostles, the Holy Spirit can blow our minds, then we may begin to see these same foreshadows that the earliest spirit-filled believers saw. And that for me is like taking a leap back in history, right? Living out the history of the church and, and that's incredible to me all by itself. I'm going to tell you why this matters beyond that, but just this is interesting in itself, I think. Psalm 22, it's the second place we've got to look. You're going to find this one fascinating. I promise you. How many of you already know about Psalm 22 in the house? Can I see your hands? Okay, that's only a couple. So that's good in the sense that I get to share it with you for the first time. This is fun. So have you ever heard these words before? In chapter 22, verse 1a, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Now listen carefully. Yet, but... You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and, and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Listen carefully. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Have you heard this before? He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet, but, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breast, from birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong boar, bulls of, of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted inside of me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They, they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare. They, they gloat at me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord... Do not be far from me. 
You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild ox. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from me, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to the people yet unborn. He has done it. Now, I'm pretty certain that if you are a follower of Jesus and you know the gospels well and you know the story of Good Friday and Easter, if I ask you what do you see in this scripture foreshadowed, you're going to almost certainly tell me the crucifixion. And you should tell me that because Jesus himself seems to have seen the parallel between Psalm 22 and his crucifixion. The early church definitely saw the parallel between Psalm 22 and the crucifixion. Just look at all the places we see similarities, right? Foreshadowed of the cross. Like Jesus, the afflicted one in Psalm 22 is mocked and scorned. He's poured out like water. Do you remember when they pierced Jesus' side and the water flowed out? His bones are out of joint. He has a dry mouth. Remember when Jesus said, I thirst and needed someone to give him a little moisture? He's surrounded by criminals on both sides and really all around him. His hands and his feet are pierced. His clothes are gambled over. Remember how the Roman soldiers gambled through lots for, for the clothes of Jesus. He's on display for all to see, high and lifted up on the cross. He's laid in the dirt and on and on and on it goes. But the question is, might there also be a foreshadow of the resurrection here? Now, the clue, especially knowing Psalm 16, and especially knowing the scriptures of the New Testament now, we can see that would be a possibility. But the big clue is that David keeps saying yet or but. So he does not only say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then he turns and says, wait a second, I know you'll rescue me. I know I can trust you. And in the end, remember, he says this. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. I'm not going to teach you the Hebrew word here, but let me just tell you that the Hebrew word that is translated the afflicted one here occurs in the Old Testament mostly in the prophecies and primarily with regard to a person of modest means, a poor person. So it is not likely that David would describe, he might have described himself in lots of ways, but David was not poor, not anything resembling poor. When he wrote this passage as a king, he probably would not have used that word to speak of himself. So we have a clue. He may be speaking of a third party. 
God has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over all the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. Listen carefully. All who go down to the dust, that is death and can't be anything but death, will kneel before him. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I'm relatively certain that when I'm laid in the ground, if that's all there is, I will be lying before God, not kneeling before him. David's talking about something beyond the grave that involves the worship and the praise of God. These people, he goes on to say, who cannot keep themselves alive, and that would be all of us as we learned in Ecclesiastes. There is something else that's going to happen. Now, this is a little less clear. Psalm 16 feels clearer than this. I'm going to grant you that, but But I'm going to tell you that the early church did see this as a foreshadow of resurrection. That's how they preached it. You might have heard this one on Easter Sunday. And not only that, but when we see this clear parallel to the cross and then we see what's after it, just maybe we see this foreshadow. Remember, foreshadows are not precise. They're illusions. They're soft images of what is to come. They teach us something about what to expect. In fact, is this possible? When Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting the first part of Psalm 22, there is no doubt that he was experiencing abandonment from his heavenly father. This is scriptural. He took the sins of the world on his shoulders. God turned his back on the sins that Jesus carried and therefore by necessity turned his back on a piece of himself in essence, on the incarnation of himself and allowed Jesus to die. A thing that people would have said could not have happened. God allowed it. God made it to happen. But... Is it possible that Jesus was giving his apostles a sign from the cross? When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They knew the rest of Psalm 22. Jesus knew the rest of Psalm 22. Might he have been saying to them, remember what I told you. This is not the end. I will rise again. I think so. That would have been a coded message that he was giving to his followers. Hold on, watch and wait because I'm not done showing up. That's pretty cool. Amazing to consider. Why should you care about this? Some of you might say this is just obscure biblical scholarship which some of you really enjoy, and others you go, eh. But there's a reason why you should care. First of all, the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Christ. Everything that comes before is prologue to what is occurring now. Everything that came before the resurrection is prologue to the resurrection, and resurrection is wound into the very fabric of creation in such a way that common people that you live and breathe around 
are looking for stories of resurrection. They're looking for resurrection hope, even if they don't know exactly what they're looking for. And it is wound into the fabric of the word of God, the scripture, resurrections all over the Bible. The story of Jesus is all over the Bible. Jesus doesn't make sense apart from the Hebrew scriptures, does he? And everything that happened before. God was paving a way and then Jesus walked that road. Exodus, you might remember his prologue to the story of Jesus. When you're reading the Old Testament, you're always thinking as a follower of Jesus about Christ. And you're seeing him everywhere. That bright morning star. Everywhere in the Old Testament. Secondly, God's salvation plan is timeless. This is not a small thing. I hear it preached sometimes. And it is, in fact, nothing short of heresy. I hear it preached sometimes that God had tried everything else. I remember this children's prayer we did in a a former church, and I listened to it and went, what? God had tried everything else, and he woke up one morning, and after he had his cup of coffee, he said, you know, I'm just going to have to go down there myself in the person of my son, Jesus, in incarnation. No. No. John 1 tells us the incarnation of Jesus, the word, was planned from the beginning of time. This was God's plan A from the beginning. The incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus was always what salvation was to be sealed with, instrumentalized with, from the beginning of time. It is not that God changed his plans at all. It is that he implemented the plan and continues to implement the plan. And so we can have trust that God knows what he's doing when it comes to our lives and our eternities. Third. God always keeps his promises. When he tells you he'll do something, he'll do it. Another favorite sermon series of many of you was the one I did on the promises of God. And I I loved that one too. It was assuring in a lot of ways, but you have to trust those promises in order for them to impact you and make you the whole life disciple that God is calling you to be. As we'll talk about in the next series, you've got to really believe them. And belief is something more than just thinking it could be true. You've got to claim these promises and trust them. Well, if there are foreshadows of the resurrection in the Old Testament and then it happened, unprecedented as it was, then you can trust that the promises God has made stand forever. Third, God always keeps his promises. Fourth, we will see foreshadows ourselves in our lives. We still see them because God is still offering them. If all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that the people of God saw an image, a rough image of what God was about to do, then we can't think that God has changed the way he works. He is still giving you a rough understanding of what he's up to. It doesn't mean it's going to be specific. I worry when people start to say, I know exactly what's going to happen. That's usually a mistake. But God does give you some sense of what he's up to in the world. And finally, five, God is still resurrecting. (laughs) Resurrection is not something God did on one day. 
The recreation is not something God did on one day. It's something he started to do from the first moment that man fell and woman fell. From the first moment that we became shame-filled sinners, God began to restore his world. The whole story of the Old Testament, the New Testament, then the history of the church thereafter and your history right now, God is still doing resurrection. He's still in the resurrection business. He is still accomplishing resurrection in our world and our lives. He's still working through the church to make all things new. And someday there will be a resurrection of the dead and we will walk to a new heaven and a new earth. And we can trust that because he said it was so. That will happen. And it doesn't start then. It has already begun and continues. God is resurrecting inside of you. God is resurrecting inside of your family. God is resurrecting inside of our church. God is resurrecting inside of this community. God is resurrecting in this state and this nation and this world. Everywhere God is, God is in the resurrection business. And if you are about the process of making all things new, then you are a Jesus person. You get it. You understand it. That's why N.T. Wright was able to write so beautifully. I love this one little line. It's my favorite line of the whole book. In his great seminal work on the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of power of God, he writes, if you're a Christian, you're just a shadow of your former self. This line will work, folks. You might want to try it once in a while. So sometime when you make your spouse mad, just say to them, you know what, honey? I'm just a shadow of my former self. Just give me a little time. See, by the grace of God, I'm going to tell you about my own story. By the grace of God, I am not what I was. And by the power of God, I am not yet what I will be. But I am on the way with Jesus. He's in the resurrection business, and I know it because he's resurrecting me. How about you? This matters. This stuff matters. Oh, God of the resurrection, pour your Holy Spirit on your people. Pour your Holy Spirit on the people around us. Give us what we're all hoping for, wishing for what we see shadows of. Give us the power of the resurrection through the Holy Spirit. Not something that happened on one day, but something that has been happening since the beginning of time and will happen for the rest of eternity. Make us a part of it in Jesus' name. Amen. To those in the house, it's so great to see you and out there. I love you. I miss you. I'm praying for you every day. You go and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a resurrection week. God bless you. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.